Amen. Good morning. The most quoted verse probably in the world for years has been John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent his son into the world not to judge the world or condemn the world but to save the world. For God so loved the world, but I think it bears asked the question, for God so loved the world, but do we? For God so loved the world that he was willing to lay it all down so the world could have life, but do we love the world in that kind of way? We're in a series, a seven-week series right now, focusing on the cross, and some of this comes out of just a confession from my own life that I feel like in my preaching, I've spent a lot of time preaching on resurrection and life and hope, and I believe in all these things, and it's going to be a central part of my preaching for years to come, but I have not focused as much on the cross. And, and this has come to reality in my life when I've had conversations with more people who have either left the faith or they have not come to the faith. And for, and for a lot of people, when it comes to the cross and why Jesus would die and why there needs to be blood for the shedding of uh, sins and why, why would God have his own son die? This is a, it's, a tr it's troubling for some people to, to wrap their minds around a God who would kill his own son or allow his own son to die. So if this is such a big deal for us, the cross, we need to know why. So I'm trying to expand how we think about the cross more than just that the cross was Jesus' way of loving you, but the cross was Jesus' way of redeeming the entire world. It was his way of taking on all of the powers of the world. Next Sunday, I know it's a Sunday where there's a time change, and I know it's a Sunday, the first Sunday of spring break for many of us. But I hope you will be here, and if you're not here, I hope you will tune in. I want to preach next week on sacrifices and why there has to be blood for the forgiveness of sins. And I'm going to preach from a lot from the book of Hebrews. And you have verses like, there, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. So I want to talk about why sacrifice was such a big deal in the Old Testament. And for the first time in the history of this church, I'm going to use an illustration. We are going to sacrifice an animal in our worship service next Sunday. Uh, I'm just joking, all right? I'm not going to take it that far. <laughs> but some of you are like, honey, change those spring break plans. We got to be here, okay? <laughs> What's he going to do? Uh, you know, I flew in a kangaroo, and we're going to take it out right here in front of everyone, okay? Uh, uh, but I want to talk about this, because this is such a big deal to all the Bible. Like, why does there have to be shedding of blood? So I hope to shed light on this. And to see what this means for us today. Why the sacrifice of blood and why the sacrifice of Jesus means so much. I know Jim Hinkle mentioned it earlier, but tonight I'm hosting another forum at 6 o'clock. And I hope you'll be here. Set your DVRs for uh, Grammys, Oscars. I forget what's tonight, all right? Set your DVRs at 6 o'clock tonight. It's going to be about a 60 to 90 minute conversation about Dr. King's legacy, about racism, about what this means for the church. And I've asked three of our African-American members from this church to join me on this stage. Uh, so Julie uh, Sano and Reggie Lee and Tisha Coleman are going to join me for this dialogue. And I, I hope you will be here. We are not going to put this on Facebook Live. Because you put something on Facebook Live about racism and you don't know what's going to happen. All right? So I hope you will be here at 6 o'clock tonight. When Jesus died, this was for you. And it was for your sins. But my favorite way to think about the death of Jesus is what is called Christus Victor. Christus Victor, the victory of Jesus. That when Jesus died, Jesus went right after death. Uh, because to take on death, he had to go straight for death. And in his death, other forms of powers, they died. Christus Victor, this victory was won at the cross. And when Jesus took on the cross, it was for you and it was for your sin. But it was also Jesus' way of taking on any unjust system, 
Any form of racism, sexism, ageism, uh, all these isms, they die at the cross. Jesus took on anything that sets itself up against the power of God. So I want you to open your Bibles today to Philippians chapter 2. It's the Christ hymn. And I want to I speak into this a little bit today. And we're in this series because the universal symbol of Christianity is the cross. And if that's true, then why? When I uh, became a, what I consider the time of my life when I became a disciple of Jesus, um, I was a junior in high school. And one of the ways I just lived out my faith, I, and it, it, I went to Mardell Christian Bookstore and I just started buying t-shirts and I would wear them. And it may, they may sound so cheesy to you, but I was buying the t-shirts and wearing the t-shirts with stuff like people use duct tape to fix things, Jesus used nails, all right? And I would, and I would wear it, and, and it may sound cheesy with some of it, that I, some of the stuff I was wearing, some of the slogans, but it forced me to behave in a certain kind of way in my school. That if I'm going to wear something that has anything to do with Jesus, I better watch the language, what, language I use and how... I interact, and what jokes do I laugh at, and where am I spending my weekends? If I were to ask you today, if we were to play a game of Pictionary up here on the stage, or, or, or a game of charades, if you've been to my house for dinner, there's a good chance you have played charades with the Ross family. Elders of this church have played charades in our house. I have it on video. I'll show you one day, okay? If, I were to, if we were playing charades or Pictionary, because you have to do something quick in the games like this, and you drew the name Jesus or you drew the word Christianity, what would you draw or what would you do? And I bet most of you would form a cross. Somehow, some way. You can try to draw or you can try to act out the feeding of loaves, but you're going to confuse people. You go to the cross, people are going to get it. It's a universal symbol of Christianity. And if it is, if we wear it, if we tattoo it on our bodies, if we put it on our cars, if we hang it in our houses, we, we need to know why. Philippians 2, 6 through 11. I hope you're ready to mark in your Bibles this morning. Underline some things, circle some things. If I had to encourage you to memorize two places in Scripture, Colossians 1, 15 through 20, which, we, which I preached on last week, and Philippians 2 would be it. And here's how it goes. Who though he was in the form of God, and this is talking about Jesus, he did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, something to be grasped, but he emptied himself. Taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bend, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth, and under the earth and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of all to the glory of God the Father. And the church said, amen. amen. Uh, what, too many times when it comes to Christianity and spirituality, we want benefits from Jesus that sometimes comes without giving loyalty to Jesus. Benefits from the cross without taking time to reflect on the nature and the character of the one who was on the cross. It is possible for us to get so busy in life that even when it comes to our prayer times, it is about what we benefit. How many times have you heard someone pray, thank you for the cross so that my sins could be forgiven and I can go to heaven when I die. And I believe in these realities. 
But too often when we get busy and distracted and we aren't taking time to reflect, we, 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 we are prone to begin to think on what are the benefits? What do I receive? Instead of taking time to reflect on who is Jesus and why did he do some of the things he has done? Because it is possible to uh, gaze at the cross and be a fan of the cross and want the benefits from the cross, but not give loyalty to the one who is on the cross and not give allegiance to the one who is on the cross and devotion and affections. Here's what Paul would do though. Whenever Paul, who loved the church, I hope I love the church as much as Paul did. Whenever Paul was expressing to people and talking about how great Jesus is, a lot of times what Paul would do is Paul would sing. And I think I'm going to start doing this too, all right? Uh, that whenever I want to lift up the name of Jesus, I'm just going to start singing because it seemed to work for Paul. Because what people think is that Colossians 1, 15 through 20, it's poetic. People think that Paul was referencing a song that had been sung for decades that the church would have been familiar with. In Philippians 2, 6 through 11, it's poetic. There's a rhythm to it. And people think that Paul was drawing from a song that had been sung by the church for years about the greatness of Jesus. It would be like me either singing or placing in front of you maybe something like, How Great Thou Art or just going through the words of it is well with my soul, or in Christ alone, where you would know what it is. But it's me calling you to reflect deeply and deeper on the words of these songs that have formed the church for so many years. Because for the church then, with a lot of people who couldn't read, songs a lot of times were the ways that people were memorizing scripture. They would sing the same things over and over again so we could get deep into their hearts. So Paul would sing. And if you look up on the screen, uh, will you go back to the slide before that? Um, on, on this right here, how the song begins, the first three lines are about the humiliation of Christ. It's about Jesus emptying himself and giving himself. And if you go to the next slide, this is about the exaltation of Jesus. It's about how Jesus was exalted. So the first part of the song is about the humiliation of Jesus, and the next part is about the exaltation of Jesus. So let me go through, okay, uh, um, and help me out there upstairs because I'm throwing you around a little bit. Will you go back to the slide before that one more time? Yeah, let's focus on this just for a moment. I want to point out a few things. Because in your Bibles, it has the form of God in the verse 6. And then if you read a few lines right in the middle over here to the left, and I don't know where it is in your Bible, but it's a form of a slave. It's a play on words. It, it's that Jesus was the form of God. He was fully God. And Jesus chose to take on the form of a slave. It's a Greek word, morphe. It's where we get like morph. And Jesus... Though he was in the form of God and he was with God in the beginning and he was part of how the world and how everything was created, he chose to take on the form of a slave. Now, I don't think this was Jesus uh, did something to his body in a way where people looked at him, he looked like a slave. Slavery in the first century had nothing to do with the color of your skin. It had very little to do even with ethnicity. Anybody that could, could become a slave, but he took the position of a slave in his life. He took the form of a slave. And not only did he take the form of a slave, this, this one phrase has messed with people for years, with theologians and scholars, with Christians, that Jesus would empty himself. If you keep, keep going back and stay on that one slide, uh, and I know I'm throwing you around a lot up there, Jen. You're doing a fantastic job. Go back one more. Uh, no, no, stay right there. All right. <laughs> that... <laughs> Jen's so good. I love her. All right. But right there, Jesus emptied himself. Kenosis. He laid it all down. This went 
it's, this went against the grain in first century culture. It went against the grain and how a king would live. It, it goes against the grain today because we don't talk about how we empty ourselves. We talk about how we fill ourselves up. For a king in those days, they were focused on how they could fill themselves up and fill up their palaces and mansions and, and they would wear things that, were, that, that express how full they were. But Jesus emptied himself, laying it all down. All right, now, Jen, if you go to the next slide, and then one more. I want to focus on this one just for a moment, because right in the middle of this song, it's the cross. The focus is, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to death. And that's not where the period is. It's not just he was obedient to death. He was death even on the cross. Three words come to mind when I think about Jesus' obedience. And obedience is in the middle, but here are three words. Jesus was accepting of the plan and the will of God. There was acceptance. There was obedience to the plan and the will of God. And there was a willingness to follow through with the plan and the will of God. There was acceptance, obedience, willingness. Write it down if you're taking notes. Acceptance, obedience, willingness. Are you willing to follow Jesus in a way where you are accepting of the plan and the will of God in your life? Where you are obedient to whatever that plan and will is for you. And that you are willing to follow through with whatever the plan and the will is. Because Jesus was accepting of the will of God, obedient to the will of God. But if you see the way Jesus wrestles with God in the garden, Jesus could have said no. Jesus was asking, okay, look, if there's any other way we can bring salvation to the world, maybe we should do it that way. Take this cup from me. Jesus was willing to follow through with obedience to whatever the plan and the will of God was. And it meant the cross. The most humiliating of any kind of death. Jesus died on the cross and he hung there for six hours before he died. Most people would be there for a lot longer than that. When you were hung on a cross, it was a spectacle. It was Rome's way of letting you know that, hey, this is what happens when anyone stands up against the power of Rome. We hang them. And we don't just hang them on a cross on the back roads. We hang them on a cross on the main road where people are walking by and they're seeing the humiliation and they are seeing the pain. I hung on a cross one time, all right? I wasn't nailed to it, but I got up on a cross. I was at a church camp. It was my senior year, and we had one class where this guy actually, like, put this cross in the ground, and there were only ropes that were, that you would kind of put your arms in these ropes, and you would hang there. And I was there maybe 30 minutes. And look, I, like, I'm not, I'm, I'm not a P90X guy. I don't do CrossFit. I'm not a bodybuilder, but I've, I've been in fairly decent shape most of my life. So I got up on that cross, and 30 minutes in, and I'm just hanging there by ropes. My shoulders were hurting. My legs were beginning to give out. I can't imagine being there for hours nailed to it. And, and not only the physical pain, but the fact that Jesus was taking on himself every sin that has ever been committed, whether people are going to surrender their life to Jesus or not. It's almost like for every day, God prolongs having Jesus come back is how much more powerful we realize the moment of the cross was because it's that much more sin and evil Jesus took upon himself on that cross. And here's what happened, all right? Look, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, so he's willing to die. And if you go to the next slide, here's, here, here's, here's this move from eight, verse 8 to verse 9. Therefore... 
And if you ever see therefore in your Bible, you've got to pause and ask, what is it there for? So it's pointing, it's whatever's before it, and he's holding it together with whatever comes after it. Therefore, God also highly exalted him. And some of your Bibles, what it says, as a consequence, God highly exalted him. As a result of, God highly exalted him. Jesus laid his life down, and then God exalted him to the highest place. Now, here's why this is so important. Jesus laid his life down for exaltation. But this wasn't just so he could be exalted for the sake of himself being exalted. He laid himself down to be exalted so that all people could be drawn to him. This was for the world. And how it works in Christianity today is for us to follow Jesus. When we become disciples of Jesus, means that we follow Jesus in the same kind of way that we lay our lives down. If you want to be exalted, you need to take a life of humility. You want to be exalted by God? We lay down our lives so that other people can have life and find life. Uh, so when Jesus is exalted, he is not just exalted as a power among all the other powers. He's exalted in a way where he has now taken out all the other powers of the world. That's what Jesus did. He went right after them. Uh, I was speaking in Russellville, Arkansas a couple of weeks ago. And uh, the other speaker at the event was a guy named Mitch. I remember listening to Mitch back when he was a youth minister. When I was in college, I heard him for the first time my freshman year. And he told a story about Philippians 2. That when Jesus was exalted and knees bowed, I remember him saying that he was a part of an event one time. And what they did is they had this circle of people. And they said, when this moment happens, when every knee bows, and when every tongue confesses that Jesus is Lord of all, who do you want next to you when that moment happens? And then people were sharing all these stories of like loved ones who had passed away and grandpas and grandmas or, or heroes of theirs or maybe people in the Bible like to be close to Paul or Peter. And, and, and then this one person said, you know who I would love to be next to me is Satan. That I want to see the moment when Satan bows his knee and confesses, Jesus, you are Lord. And now for the rest of eternity, there is nothing I can ever do about it. Kind of a powerful thought, right? Um, there, uh, I came across a story a few weeks ago that uh, back in 1979, Pope John II was supposed to visit Chicago. He was coming to the United States, and then he said he's going to visit Chicago. And in Chicago, it's the largest Roman Catholic archdiocese in the nation. And I didn't know this, but in every archdiocese, there's a throne room for if the Pope chooses to come to your city. There's a throne room with a throne on it for the Pope. So Chicago thought that there was no way that the Pope's ever going to visit Chicago because when the Pope would come to the United States, he would never come to Chicago. So they were giving up hopes. So then they get word that the Pope is coming to Chicago and it threw everyone in disarray. And the reason why is they had made the throne room into a committee meeting room. They had given up hope that the Pope would ever come, so they had totally transformed the throne room. And even worse, they couldn't find where the throne was. The throne had been removed, and they couldn't find it anywhere, so they were scrambling. So they hire workers to come in and to try to create a throne room. And the day before the Pope came, they found the throne back in some closet in storage. And here's what's a tragedy today is that many of us, many people, don't have a throne room in our lives for God, and if we do, the wrong person or thing is on it. 
that the throne room of our heart may have, it may have me. It, that we may be on our own thrones. Or there are things of God that are on our thrones that aren't supposed to be on our thrones. Like spouses or kids or relatives or jobs. Things that may be good, but they're not meant for a throne. The throne is only meant, it's only meant for Jesus. When Jesus is lifted up, he will draw all people to him, right? When Jesus is exalted, he will draw all people to him. Now, the way this should go is like this. That Jesus is exalted, and when he is exalted, we, are, we come to the reality of our sin and the mess we've made in life. And this should create great distance between us, between the glory of God and the mess we can make in life. But what Jesus shows us is that when he is exalted, this does not create distance between the one we worship and the worshiper. This creates connection. It creates connection, and not only that, it also creates a greater clarity of mission. Too, to, too many times we, we go through life and we are focused on some things in life, like jobs or, or family or stress. We're focused on them, and Jesus is only in the peripheral vision. And, we are, and when we can't see Jesus clearly, we can't see the clarity of what our mission in life is supposed to be. Um, so Philippians 2, 6 through 11. Uh, this is not Paul's way of doing theology. It is Paul's way of doing ethics. He's trying to teach this church of why they are called to be a certain kind of people. I don't think this is a place where Paul's doing doctrinal instruction as much as he's trying to teach people how to live. So there's a story that was told of three men who went to a confession one day. And the whole idea is, hey, we're going to go to confession. And we're going to try to throw this priest off. We're just going to confess things we've, we've really never done and just see if we can get a response out of him. And the first one did it, and the priest let him go. And the second one did it, and the priest blessed him, and he left. And then the third one came. And the priest said, here's what I want you to do. Before you leave, I want you to go, and I want you to stand in front of the cross of, of Jesus. And here's the statement I want you to say three different times. You did this for me. And I do not give that much. Like, I don't care that much. And when you say that, I want you to snap. So this man went and stood before the cross and said, you did this for me. And I do not give that much. And he did it the first time. And he did it the second time. And on the third time, it was like God just broke him. And he just stood there mesmerized at the love of God that flowed off the cross. And he gave his life to the service of ministry and the service of the kingdom for the rest of his life. This song that Paul gives us in Philippians 2 was in response to circumstances happening in the life of that church. It's his way of trying to reorient them. In fact, look in your Bibles in, in chapter 2, verse 1 through 4. So if you back up in chapter 2, here's what it says. If then there is any encouragement in Christ any comfort from his love, any sharing in the spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete and be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and in one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. And let each of you look not to your own interest, but to the interests of others. Some people have said, this is Paul way, Paul's way of four different times telling people in the church to get it together. Get it together because you are focused on the wrong things. 
there were some fighting going on in this church. Some people read Philippians, and in most of Philippians, it's very encouraging. But, but in Philippians, Paul talks a lot about joy and a lot about rejoicing, like rejoice in the Lord always. Say it again, rejoice. And I think the reason Paul talks so much about joy and rejoicing isn't because he's affirming what they have. He's stating what they are lacking. We lack joy. Here's the deal. Joy, uh, it is hard for joy to coexist with gossip. It's hard for joy to coexist with cynicism. It's hard for joy to coexist with people in the church who are fighting amongst one another. You remember C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters? In that book, he talks about how like, it, there, there were angels who would report to, um, to, to Satan and, 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 and these uh, bad angels. They weren't good angels. They were in the church and they came one day and they're like, we can't keep people from going to church. We're trying, but they keep going to church. And the word they received from Satan was this. Hey, hey, let them go to church. Don't keep them from going to church. Let them go to church. But when they get in there, make them bitter. When they get in there, make them focused on uh, that. I don't want to sing this song because I don't like the way it sounds. Make them focused on division more than on unity. Keep their eyes from Jesus. Let them go to church. In this church, there was some fighting going on. In chapter 4, verse 2, we see kind of what it is. Some people say this is the reason Paul wrote all of Philippians. He says, I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And yes, I ask you also, my loyal companion, help these women, for they've struggled beside me in the work of the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. These seem to be two women, prominent leaders in the church, and something was happening between them. I think one of them had taken the other one's chair in church one Sunday morning, or maybe one of them ate all the donuts at church on a Sunday some kind of fight was happening between them, and it was, it was dividing the church. And Paul writes to him to clean up some of this mess, and right in the middle of Philippians is when he gives them the Christ him, who Jesus is and what he did. And then right after verse 4 and before the Christ him, here's the one verse, and I want you to take this throughout the rest of your week. Chapter 2, verse 5, this is the kicker, man. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. The bar doesn't set much higher than that, right? Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. I would encourage you to take that, to carry it with you somehow this week. Recite it a few times every day. Your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus. And when we live into this phrase in this statement, we realize service is not just something we do at an event. Service becomes a way of life. We realize that we renounce our individual rights for the benefit of the world. And here's what I'm trying to do in this series, is that the cross of Jesus is not just something we become a fan of. It's not just something we, we stand and look at. How do we respond to what Jesus has done? How do we respond? When's the last time you took time just to reflect or to speak in prayer, God for what you did on the cross and what this has taught me about you. And now you call me to take up my own cross and to follow you. How are we laying down our lives so other people can find life? If God loves the world so much he would send his son to die, do we? Because I'm troubled sometimes when I see Christians. The way they talk and the way they speak. I don't know if many Christians in the world today and in our country today really love the world. At least the language they use doesn't show it. People are mad at the world, and, I, and, and they've created this animosity and hatred to the world. If God loves the world, how do we learn to love it like he does? 
And I'm troubled some by Christians who I hear them talk so much of how they want God to save this nation, but I don't know how concerned they are about wanting the people in this nation to be saved by God. God doesn't call us to love God and then go and make disciples, but trust in the government to try to set up the right system so that people can come to know Jesus. It's, it's you are called by God to make disciples of people you interact with every day. And how are we calling people to reflect on the greatness of God, the goodness of God, the cross of God, so that people can come to God? Carl Jung told a story of a man who came to a minister one day, and what he said was this, how come in the olden days God would show himself to people, but today nobody ever sees God? Like, why, why did people get to see God back then, but it doesn't seem like people are seeing God now? And here was the minister's response. Is that because nowadays, nobody is willing to bow low enough. No one's willing to bow low enough. So, my prayer for you as a church. <laughs> that could have been a lot worse. <clears throat> my prayer for you as a church this week is that you will stand on the promises of God. You will stand on the foundation of God. But here's my prayer for you. It's the same prayer I've been praying for my kids for years. My prayer is not that God will make life easy for you. My prayer is that for this church, God will teach us and help us to be faithful and bold and courageous no matter what life brings and that that will be enough. I want to invite the praise team up to the stage and as they come, I want to invite the elders to go to receive people in the room and prayer leaders to go to receive people for prayer. You have a few different places you can go. If there's something you want to bring in front of the church, you can come up front. If there are people you want to go and just pray with, they're stationed around the room and you will see where they are. The praise team is going to lead us in a song, and many of you may not know. Um, and so I invite you just to receive it, or it's an easy song. Feel free to join in whenever you want. And I want to invite us as we sing these songs, and to some, whatever posture you want to take, if it's bowing before the Lord today, if it's confessing Jesus by taking a posture of silence, if you need to open your hands where you are, I invite you to do that. For those of you who may not want to kneel in the moment, I invite you to stand where you are and let's sing these songs. And let's sing them as a devotion uh, to God.